We just finished talking about the pre-Assyrian prophets. God established his judgment against Israel and then Judah as well, and warning that the Assyrians were going to come because of their sins. He then kept telling them through prophet after prophet after prophet that they were going to go into exile. And they were going to go into exile specifically by the hand of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came in 722 and sacked. So that was the pre-Assyrian prophets warning of that exile over and over and over again, condemning them for their sins, but promising them a hope of restoration. So that brings us to the pre-Babylonian prophets. Israel in the north, the ten tribes, have gone into exile. Most of them have been killed. The rest have been deported across the Assyrian Empire. And now all that is left of the people of God is the Judah, this little city-state by the name of Judah. And the Assyrians have come, and they're slowly whittling the size of Judah down. But when they get to Jerusalem, God stays their hand and drives them away. And they basically are now frozen, and this Assyria is not harming them anymore, but they're not coming to God and repenting to be restored and have a revival in any kind of a way. And so the pre-Babylonian prophets are coming in and they're warning of the judgment of God through the Babylonians. And that judgment will come in three ways. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to the Jeremiah. Um, but the first wave, Nebuchadnezzar the second, will come in 605 and take a group of people into exile, including Ezekiel. And then he will take another wave in 597. And then he'll take a final wave in 586 BC when he sacks Jerusalem completely and even Judah is in exile. So that's kind of where we're going to now with these prophets. The first pre-Babylonian prophet we're dealing with is Nahum. Nahum is a pre-Babylonian prophet that ministered sometime between the fall of Egyptian city in 663 and Assyria's capital in 612. He ministered primarily to um, Judah, warning mostly Assyria. He's kind of promising the fall of Assyria. Okay, so Assyria has not fallen yet. And God is basically through Nahum saying that he will deal with Assyria. Because even though God used Assyria to punish um, his people, he was not okay with the way the Assyrians did it. And he was not okay with the physical violence that they exacted on his people. And it was one thing to kill them in judgment. It was another thing to mutilate them and massacre them and that kind of stuff. And he was not okay with the pride that they had. They did not recognize that they were being used by Yahweh to do this. And they did not recognize that they were a tool in his hand. And so they thought they were all that and they were great in everything. The purpose of the book of Nahum was to announce the downfall of Assyria as an example of how Yahweh will not allow violent empires to endure. So he is now promising Israel, who's in exile and been killed, and Judah, who has reaped the chaos of the Assyrians exacted on them, that he will deal with the Assyrian empire and he will punish them. And just like he punished the Canaanites and just like he punished Egypt and just like he punished Israel, he will punish the Assyrians. But the other thing that he begins to do in Nahum is he begins to establish this typology that the way that he dealt with the Canaanites, the way that he dealt with Egypt, the way that he dealt with Israel, the way that he's going to deal with Assyria is the way he's going to deal with all nations. And we've already talked about that typology a little bit in Isaiah chapter 7. 
But this is where he's really going to develop is this is the template for all nations. And so we're going to see this when we get to the book of Daniel. He will deal with the Babylonians with the coming of the Medes. And then he'll deal with the Medes with the coming of the Persians. And then he'll deal with the Persians with the coming of the Greeks. And he'll deal with the Greeks with the coming of the Romans. And the idea is that's what he will do all throughout human history. The Byzantine Empire, the Mongols, the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, the Austrian Empire, the British Empire, the American Empire, all empires that turn away from God and in their own pride and arrogance think that they can do whatever they want and not acknowledge Yahweh and not be obedient to his righteous laws, God will deal with them. And the same way that he dealt with all the other nations and the way that he loves dealing with these nations is using other nations. And we've already kind of seen this hinted at in Isaiah, but he will one day promise that eventually this cycle of evil nations punishing evil nations will come to an end when the kingdom of God comes to earth. And that's what Daniel's specifically going to prophesy with the little rock that destroys the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, that eventually all evil nations will be dealt with and he will establish his cosmic mountain in Jerusalem with his Davidic king who will bring utopian nation and all the people from all the nations that repent will come to him. And so this is kind of the idea of Nahum. Let's get to Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elikashite. Yahweh is a zealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and very angry. Yahweh takes vengeance against his foes. He sustains his rage against his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in power. And Yahweh will certainly not allow wicked to go unpunished. Now that's a good summary statement on the justice of God. So basically, now the NIV uses the word jealous instead of zealous. But that's probably not the best word. Zealous is better. Jealous, you can use that word like God is jealous for us, meaning that he desires us to be in a good relationship with him and, and to serve him and be loyal to him and him alone. But even then in our culture, jealousy has more of a relationship thing and more of a my my desire for you has been taken too far, an obsessive kind of a way. So zealous is much better of a righteous word for God's desire for righteousness and God's desire for us and his desire for us to be in a godly relationship with him and to be obedient to him. So it says that Yahweh is zealous and avenging God. He will punish the wicked. No matter how much you think the wicked are getting away with things, the book of Ecclesiastes he will one day deal with them because he rules the world with wisdom, even though his justice does not immediately come right off the bat. And so he will deal with them and his vengeance will go against them. But notice he says that even though he deals with them, he's patient. He's slow to anger. He's not a God that just flies off the handle and, and beats people down because they just messed up one time. He's not a God who just throws the book at you after one mistake. He's a God who is patient patient over and over and over again. And that's that's the, the conundrum that we deal with. We want per people to be dealt with, like deal with them now, punish them now. I want that now. But it, as quickly as he punishes them, he's also robbing them opportunity of repentance and coming back to him. And that, that's so that any moment that God is allowing them longer to repent and come back, he's allowing injustice to last longer. 
But when he quickly moves to punish them and deal with them, he also shortens their chance of repentance and coming back to him. So either way, something is being affected, his justice or his grace and mercy. And so God balances that because only he is wise and knows the hearts of people truly to their core. And only he knows when to perfectly wait just long enough that they will have a chance to repent, but to act quickly enough that he will deal with them in their sin and their violence against other people. And so that's basically what he's saying is, I will punish the wicked, but I'm slow to anger. And that's the theological message that is wrapped up into that. And I will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. And that's what he's basically saying of Assyria. And that's what I did with Israel. And that's what I did with the Canaanites before them. That's what I did with the Egyptians and so many other empires as we dealt with in the book of Amos as he listed many empires that he had problems with. Verse 3b. He marches out in a whirlwind, the raging storm, dark storm clouds billow like dust under his feet. Now remember, every single time God appears in judgment, he comes in a whirlwind, a cloud, a tornado, a storm, a fire, and lightning, and darkness at the same time. And this is the way he portrays himself as a God of judgment and punishing people. And we've seen that over and over again. I think almost every prophetic book has portrayed him in that kind of a way. And so when you see the whirlwind of God, it is not good. His punishment is going to be dealt out. Verse 4, he shouts a battle cry against the sea and makes it dry up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and blossoms in Lebanon withers. The mountains tremble before him. The hills convulse. The earth is laid waste before him and the world and all of his inhabitants are laid to waste. No one can withstand his indignation, his anger. No one can resist his fierce anger. His wrath is poured out like a volcanic fire. Boulders are broken up as he approaches. Yahweh is good. Indeed, he is a fortress in a time of distress, and he protects those who seek refuge in him. We already saw this in Micah. We saw this in Isaiah. When God shows up in the whirlwind, all the mountains melt under his fury, his fire. Nothing in creation can withstand him. Now, notice it also said that the sea dries up and the the rivers wither away. Because remember, the sea is symbolic of... Chaos, chaos and destruction. And so both it can be both that chaos of just that's the chaos of life, that it's not exactly evil, that that chaos is happening. That's just the way storms work and plants work and all that kind of stuff. But it can also represent the chaos that's perpetuated by evil people. And so everything withers. So he says, I will deal with the chaos because I'm coming in my whirlwind of anger to bring justice but creation can't withstand me. Nothing can withstand me. But notice that at the very end of that, it says he is good. Remember Isaiah 63, when God comes like a cosmic giant, stomping on everything and punishing people, and he's just got blood of the victims on his robes and that kind of stuff. And Isaiah's like, who is this? And Yahweh's like, I'm ticked that I have to punish evil and nobody will go with me. Nobody is just to stand by my right hand. And Isaiah immediately began to praise him for being a good and compassionate God. Why? Because God will defend the victims and he will punish the wicked. And so this is how Nahum responds. He is good. He is a fortress for those who are righteous. But those who are wicked, the mountains wither and melt in his presence. And notice it says he protects those who seek refuge in him. 
That's the same idea when the angels came to the shepherds in Luke and said, peace to those who find goodwill in God. Meaning those who seek God will experience peace. Those who do not seek God will not experience peace. Verse 8, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of Nineveh. He will drive his enemies in darkness. Now, if you were an Israelite, this is the time that you're like, yay, hallelujah, the evil people will be punished. Okay, remember when Saddam Hussein was taken down and how all the people were celebrating that. When the linen, when the Iron Curtain fell and they were tearing down the statues of linen and all that kind of stuff, there was a huge celebration. When tyrants are brought down low, the victims celebrate big time. And nobody in Iraq was saying, wait, the way that Saddam Hussein was dealt with was wrong. They were just happy that the guy who mass buried their family members in unmarked graves was gone, was gone. And that's what Nahum is saying here. Verse 9, whatever you plot against Yahweh, he will completely destroy. Distress will not arise the second time. Surely they will totally be, they will be totally consumed like entangled thorn bushes, like the drink of drunkards. So he's going to make them be drunk with his vengeance, his judgment, his wrath. And no plot against righteousness will last for very long. God will deal with it all. Like very dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, one has marched forth who plots evil against Yahweh, a wicked military strategist. This is what Yahweh says. Even though they are powerful, and what is more, even though their army is numerous, nevertheless they will be destroyed and trickle away. Although I afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break Assyria's yoke. I will tear apart the shackles that are on you. Yahweh has issued a decree against you. Your dynasty will come to an end. I will destroy the idols and the images and the temples of your gods. I will desecrate your grave because you are accursed. Look, a herald is running on the mountains. A messenger is proclaiming deliverance. Celebrate your sacred festivals. O Judah, fulfill your sacred vows to praise God. For never again will the wicked Assyrians evade you. They have been completely destroyed. So God now turns to Nineveh and says, I will destroy you. Even though you are the mightiest empire with the mightiest army that the world has ever seen. And for almost a hundred years, you ruled over everyone and as an unstoppable juggernaut. And no matter who the God they cried out to as far as gods go, and no matter what military or nations they trusted in, nobody could stop the Assyrians. And the only people that escaped the Assyrians was Judah, because Hezekiah repented to Yahweh, and Yahweh stopped them. God is basically saying, you are unstoppable, but not against me. I have stopped you once when you came to the gates of Jerusalem, and I drove you back, and now I will totally destroy you, and I will ruin you completely for who you are, because I am Yahweh. Advance the message. No nation can stand against Yahweh. So that brings an end to the first section. So Nahum is divided into two major sections. And the first one is basically the announcement of Nineveh's destruction, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The second half of the book is the description of Nineveh's destruction. So now God is going to go and describe how Nineveh is actually going to be destroyed in this takeover. So chapter 2, verse 1. 
the watchmen of Nineveh shout. Now the watchmen is, can be both the people who look out for invaders and announce that are coming, but also is another word used of prophets. Because the prophets are the people who watch out for who God is and what he's saying, and they announce it to the people as warnings or victories. The watchmen of Nineveh shout, An enemy will scatter you, is marching out to attack you. Guard the rampart, watch the road, prepare yourselves for battle, muster your mighty strength. For Yahweh will restore the majesty of Jacob as well as the majesty of Israel, though your enemies have plundered them and have destroyed their fields. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The mighty soldiers are dressed in scarlet garments. The metal fittings of the chariots shine like fire on the day of battle. The soldiers brandish their spears. So he talks about their weapons, the army that is coming. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush back and forth in broad plazas. They look like lightning bolts. They dash here and there like flashes of lightning. The commander's orders his officers. They stumble as they advance. They rush to the city wall, and they set up and covered the siege tower. The Seleuce gates are open. The royal palace is placed. The royal palace is deluge, a deluge, and dissolves. Nineveh is taken to exile and is led away. Her slave girls moan like droves while they beat their breasts. So he describes his invading army, this army that is massive with chariots and swords and spears and shields that are way superior to anything that the Assyrians had. And they begin to come barreling down on Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and they hit the walls and they bust through and they start taking Assyria into exile. And of course, Nahum does not mention them by name yet, but later we will know they are the Babylonians that are coming. Verse 8, Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, but now her people are running away. She cries out, stop, stop, but no one turns back. So one day, you, one at one day, one time in the past, you were a refreshing pool of water to people. People came to your nation and they felt peace. They felt comfort. They felt hope for the future. They felt stability. They felt like this was the greatest country that I could live in and I will always be safe and comfortable and secure here. But they became arrogant and prideful and mistreated other people. And now they are running away and they are crying, stop, stop, rescue us, save us. We are about to become no more because God will not tolerate this. For conquerors cry out, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, riches of every kind, precious things, destruction, devastation, and desolation. Their hearts faint, their knees tremble. Each stomach churns, each face turns pale. Where now is the den of lions, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, the lioness, and the lion cub once prowled, and no one disturbed them? The lion tore apart as much prey as the cub needed and strangled prey to provide food for his lioness. He filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So where is the great lion of Assyria now? The one that tore other nations apart to feed its own people with its own plunder. Now you are no more. 
Verse 13, I'm against you, declares Yahweh, who commands armies. I will burn your chariots with fire. The sword will devour your young lions. You will no longer prey upon the land. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city, guilty of bloodshed. She is full of lies. Lies. She is filled with plunder. She has hoarded her spoil. The chariot drivers will crack their whips. The chariot wheels will shake the ground. The chariot horses will gallop. The war chariots will bolt forward. The charioteurs will charge ahead. The swords will flash and their spears will glimmer. There will be many people slain and there will be piles of the dead. The countless casualties. So many that people will stumble over the corpses. Because you have acted like a wanton prostitute, a seductive mistress who practiced sorcery, who enslaves nations by her holotory. She entices peoples by their sorcery. I am against you, declares Yahweh, who commands armies. I will strip off your clothes. I will show your nakedness to the nations and your shame to the kingdoms. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you public spectacle, spectacle, spectacle. Everyone who sees you will turn away from you in disgust, and they will say Nineveh has been devastated. Who will lament for her? There will be no one to comfort you. You are no more secure than Thebes. She was located on the banks of the Nile. Thebes was a great city in Egypt. The waters surrounded her. Her rampart was a sea. The water was her wall. Cush and Egypt had limitless strength. Put and Libyans were among her allies. Yet she went into captivity as an exile. Even her infants were smashed to pieces as the head of every, at the head of every street. They cast lots for her nobility, and all her dignitaries were bound with chains. You too will act like drunkards, and you will go into hiding. You too will seek refuge from the enemy. So God describes their downfall. And it's a very repetitious language over and over and over again. But remember, if you're a victim of the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire, you like hearing about all this kind of stuff. You, we, we like reading things about how people who punish you and deal you wrongly will come to an end. And by repeating this, he makes it clear to Judah and Israel, he will do this. By giving graphic detail, he makes it clear that their punishment will be complete. And by describing it in graphic CNN, Fox, CBS-like terminology, he, it becomes real. Okay, the more details that it gives in a language that they understand from their culture, the more real that it is. Remember, we have video cameras now, and we can watch these things happen. And for us, it becomes very real. But when you just hear about it, it doesn't feel as real. Like even right now, with this whole coronavirus thing going on, relatively speaking, my family and I, are we're healthy. And I know that we're lucky because I know a lot of families are suffering from the virus and a lot of families are have weak immune systems and they can be very sensitive to that. But we have experienced relative peace and health. And we have a nice backyard for the girls to play in. There's a park close by, so we go on bike rides a lot and we go walking around a lot. And, and we're introverts, so being in the house doesn't really bother us that much and we're not like dying. And so, and we don't watch the news that much. So for us, this whole virus thing and being sheltered feels surreal. It doesn't feel really real. 
For us, we're not really watching the news. And even if you watch the news, you're not really watching people die. And you can't really watch people being shut up in their houses because people don't film that kind of stuff and it's not exciting. And so it's hard. It's something they think, are we the only people? Is this like some kind of illusion we've fallen into and we're like sheltering in place and nobody else is doing this? And it doesn't feel real. Until you go on the news and you see the interviews of people who are struggling with the fires, until you see the doctors who are wearing the face masks all the time and dealing with the patients, and then when you visually see it, it starts becoming concrete. When you go on a walk with your kids and everybody like crosses the street to the other side, and when you drive through the mall, and it's, I mean, we went to Easton just to walk around to see what it was like, and it was like a ghost town. The kids, kids loved it, but um, that's when it becomes more real because it's visual. And it becomes concrete. And so not only do they live in a time period where there's no video cameras to see this happen, they will never see a Syria or Nineveh's downfall ever visually. And all they will get is the news of a herald. And, and, and not only that, it hasn't even happened yet for them. So God is giving graphic language because this is his version at this time period of watching on the news. And he's trying to make it as concrete as possible for them so that he can fill them with hope that it will happen. And then when it does happen, and the heralds and the messengers describe it in the exact same way that God described it, it will become God was right. And it truly has happened. And so for us, it feels repetitive, or it feels overly graphic and detailed. But for them, this is how it becomes concrete to them. This is how it becomes concrete. Verse 12. All your fortifications will be like fig trees with first ripe fruit. If they are shaken, their figs will fall into the mouth of the eater. Your warriors will be like women in your midst. The gates of your hand will be wide open to your enemies. Fire will consume the bars of your gates. Draw yourself water from the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Trample the mud and tread the clay. Make mud bricks to strengthen your walls. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locusts would. Multiply yourself like the young locusts. Multiply yourself like the flying locusts. Increase your merchants more than the stars of the heaven. Remember, that's another phrase for the angels. They are like the young locust which sheds its skin and flies away. Your courtiers are like locusts. Your officials are like swarm of locusts. They encamp on the walls on a cold day, yet the sun rises and they fly away and no one knows where they are. So just like the locusts come, and when they come, they are a plague and they are massive. I remember um, kind of one of the, the one of the weirdest moments, weirdest memories I've ever had. Um, we went, when I was a kid, I don't know, sometime in elementary school, we went down to Hocking Hills where um, some relatives on my mom's side of the family are buried in a cemetery there. And it was like the seven year or the 14 year um, cicada plague or whatever, like plague for lack of a better phrase, because it's America. We don't have that kind of plagues. But I remember the noise was deafening. And then like we couldn't quite see it yet because we had just gotten out of the cars and we were walking through the grass. And my cousin Adam and I, who were like the same age, we were kind of like, we were a little weirded out because the trees were moving. And as we got closer, we realized they were completely covered in cicadas and they were just crawling and everything was just kind of like undulating and moving. And it was a really weird kind of like Hollywood movie kind of an experience. So, and it didn't scare us. We were old enough not to be scared, but 
we were young enough to be weirded out a little bit. That's just like the closest probably America has ever gotten to like a cicada experience or a locust. But if you've ever seen the movie Hildago, um, which is a good movie, that's a locust play. And they come in and they devastate and they can like, they don't harm humans, but if all those things are smacking you, that can be a bruising experience. And they devastate your crops. But as quickly and as destructive as they come, they also quickly just disappear. And that's what God says of all nations. No matter, Assyria came and they were destructive and nobody could stop them like a locust plague. But just like a locust plague, then morning you wake up and they're all gone. And within a few weeks, nobody really has a memory of them. And after a couple months, the crops have all recovered. And so this is what God is saying of Assyria. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your officers are slumbering. Your people are scattered like sheep on the mountains, and there is no one to gather them. Your destruction is like an incurable wound. Your demise is like a fatal injury. All who hear what has happened to you will clap their hands for joy, for no one ever escaped your endless cruelty. No one escaped your cruelty. Therefore, you're not going to escape my judgment. And now you become a nation that is so powerful, you've become cocky. And when you become cocky, you become relaxed. And that's when God strikes. That's when God strikes. So that is the book of Nahum. Nahum is a short and sweet to the point kind of a book. And it's basically just promising, I will deal with those who violate you and commit injustice against you. Whether they are my people who knew the law and are held to a higher standard, or whether they're just the Gentiles or the nations who are absent of the law and did not really know who I am, but they still knew what was right and wrong, and they still could have seen me. That is the book of Nahum. 